This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash kick. That's g.co slash play slash kick. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. I've recently had a few listeners write in to say that I've had too many guests from the intelligence community and the press criticizing Donald Trump and calling for his impeachment. So today, I'm giving equal time to the other side. Sort of. You see, my guest today is not a Republican or an alt-right Trump supporter. In fact, he's a lifelong Democrat who voted for Hillary Clinton and even donated to her campaign, and he's vocally opposed many of Trump's policies as president. But now he's making an equally impassioned case against Trump's impeachment, not because he's a fan of the president, but because he's a fan of the Constitution. In his latest book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, attorney Alan Dershowitz reminds readers that impeachment is a legal proceeding, not political theater. And he says the rules, clearly spelled out in the Constitution, apply as much to President Donald Trump as they would to a President Hillary Clinton. And he ought to know because Alan Dershowitz is one of the most famous lawyers in America, having advised and defended many of the most widely covered legal cases of the past 50 years, including O.J. Simpson, Anatoly Sharansky, Michael Milken, Klaus von Bülow, and Mike Tyson. The Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School, Dershowitz has been called one of the most prominent and consistent defenders of civil liberties in America by Politico and the nation's most peripatetic civil liberties lawyer and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights by Newsweek. And on today's podcast, he says even though he may not like Donald Trump, the president is entitled to the same rights as any other American. He explains exactly what is and is not an impeachable offense, why a crime may not always equal impeachment, and how this applies to presidents from Andrew Johnson and Richard Nixon to Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. According to Dershowitz, and he says, according to the Constitution, the president has every right to fire the FBI director, shut down investigations, and pardon anyone he wants, perhaps even including himself. He warns against a dangerous trend of criminalizing politics on both sides, argues that the Mueller investigation runs the risk of abusing attorney-client privilege, and asks, where has the ACLU been throughout it all? Plus, he rates Rudy Giuliani's performance as Trump's attorney, weighs in on the president's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and the world's most famous defense attorney advises that Trump should absolutely not agree to an interview with the Mueller investigation. Coming up with Professor Alan Dershowitz, in just a moment.
Alan Dershowitz is one of the most famous and celebrated lawyers in America. He's advised and defended many of the most famous legal cases of the past 50 years, including O.J. Simpson, Anatoly Sharansky, Michael Milken, Klaus von Bülow, and Mike Tyson. He's the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School and the author of numerous best-selling books, including his latest, The Case Against Impeaching Trump. Alan Dershowitz, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of podcasts, and it's a pleasure to have an an intelligent, thoughtful conversation about this issue, all too rare these days. Indeed, the pleasure is all mine. Now, you argue against impeaching President Trump, but you are not a Trump supporter per se. You're a lifelong Democrat who donated to and voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So explain why you're taking up this cause. I've never voted for a Republican presidential candidate in my life, and I'm a strong Democrat and a strong liberal. I'm making exactly the same argument I made for President Bill Clinton and the same argument I would have made had Hillary Clinton been elected president and they were trying to impeach or prosecute her. In fact, to make the point, my publisher came up with an alternate cover, the same book, the same cover, but it's called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. And it would be exactly the same, except that the liberals would love me. They'd be building a statue to me on Martha's Vineyard instead of vilifying and refusing to listen to me. And in point of fact, you have actually criticized a number of President Trump's policies over the past year or so. So for you, Mm -hmm. this is what? Strictly a constitutional issue? Strictly a constitutional issue. Uh, You know, when I was a kid in college, I defended the rights of communists to speak. I hated communism. I suspended the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie. I've constantly, all through my life, defended people I've thoroughly disapproved of. In the case of Donald Trump, I disapprove of his immigration policy, separation of families, gun control policy, Charlottesville policy, uh, policy toward taxation, health care, even mother's milk. My God, the other day, the Trump administration tried to push back on women breastfeeding their children. I'm opposed to virtually everything that this administration does. I just don't want to see constitutional rights violated no matter whose rights they are. Well, I have to say that you would be a rare voice of reason then in this current political climate because it seems to me that people's standards for what's right, what's acceptable, even what's legal now seems to be entirely flexible depending on whether there's a D or an R next to someone's name. Mm -hmm. I just always have one test, the shoe on the other foot test. What would I be doing if the shoe were on the other foot? If The R with the D, the D with the R. You know, this is not original with me. The great legal philosopher, John Rawls, uh, came up with a test of morality in which he said, you're in a kind of netherworld behind a veil of ignorance. You don't know whether when you're born you'll be rich or poor, tall or short, male or female, black or white. You have to come up with a system of morality that would be good for everybody without knowing where you're going to be. And that's the way I come up with my constitutional rules. It has to be the same rule for a Democrat, for a Republican, for a popular president, unpopular president, for a Clinton or for a Trump. And this book does sort of build on the last book that you wrote, Trumped Up, which addressed the criminalization of political differences on both sides. When Trump calls on Jeff Sessions to investigate Hillary Clinton or Chance Lockerup, or a while back I had uh, Alan Lichtman on the show arguing right. kind of the opposite of your book, and he said mm-hmm. even Trump's exit from the Paris Climate Accord would amount to a crime against humanity, in his words. It, it seems like we're entering dangerous territory, Alan. I mean, this is what dictators do, isn't it? They find ways to put political enemies in jail. 
Look, we're seeing that on both sides of the political spectrum. If Hillary Clinton had been elected, we'd be seeing the same thing by Republicans today. But the Lickman argument takes it to its illogical conclusion, the idea that uh, he's committing a crime against the environment and that would be a basis for impeachment. The framers would be turning over in their grave. They wanted to make it very hard to impeach. They didn't want the British system. They wanted the president to be independent of the legislature and they rejected the notion that a president can be impeached for maladministration of office or for being a bad president or for even for violating people's rights. They set a very difficult and burdensome criteria you need to be tried and convicted by the Senate, two-thirds of the Senate, uh, of crimes. Um, it has to be treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Unless you can satisfy that criteria, the president uh, cannot be impeached. And if the Senate tries to do that, they are acting unconstitutionally. And yet even Madison and Franklin seemed to, at least in their writings, define the terms for impeachment pretty broadly. I think Ben Franklin even said you can impeach the executive for obnoxiousness. Yeah, and uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, used a, a, comp a similar phrase. He said maybe you can impeach a president for engaging in dastardly conduct. What would fall under the term dastardly behavior unless Brett Kavanaugh is planning on impeaching snidely whiplash? So. Uh -huh. How many of us have engaged in dastardly behavior at one point in our lives? The idea that that would be the criteria, I don't think he really was uh, thinking about the Constitution when he said that, and I'm sure he'll be questioned about it. The problem is you can't decide what the Constitution means by looking at selective statements by individuals because the Constitution was ratified by the states. And uh, you have to look at what the people of the United States believed the impeachment clause meant. And for that, you look at words. The words are simple. Mm -hmm. uh, they include treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. That's a list that includes all acts that are criminal. It's interesting. My friend Larry Tribe, who wrote a brilliant book on this, uh, makes the argument the opposite way. He says, look, you have to look at what the list is. He's quoting Justice Scalia. He said, if there were a list that said, here's a list of great competitors, including Mickey Mantle, Joe Lewis, Joe DiMaggio, uh, Sandy Koufax, and then you were asked to add a name to it, you wouldn't add Sam Walton of Walmart, uh, even though he's a great <laughs> competitor, because the list obviously is intended to yeah. include only athletic competitors. The same thing here. The list, everything in the list is a crime. And I think it's clear that the framers or the people who ratified the Constitution had in mind that you had to commit a crime. Once you're convicted of committing a crime, then political consideration can come into play, but not before that. On the other hand, I know that Congresswoman Maxine Waters has argued last year that impeachment is whatever Congress says it is and that there is no law. And even before that, Gerald Ford made a similar assertion during Watergate. Is that true? Is Congress the final arbiter of what is an impeachable offense? Is it just an entirely political proceeding? Well, I argue in the case against impeaching Trump, that's exactly wrong. Let me lay out a scenario for you. Let's assume that Congress impeached the president for a non-crime, followed the Waters um, uh, argument, and, um, and then the Senate removed him for a non-crime. And the president, who's an independent branch of government, says, I'm not going anywhere. You removed me unconstitutionally. There are three branches of government. <clears throat> we, I interpret the Constitution differently than you do. I'm not leaving office. At that point, what do you do? They can't call the army out. Uh, the army is under the auspices of the president. They have to go to the Supreme Court. So in the end, the Supreme Court would be the arbiter if you had a situation 
where Congress defied the Constitution and followed the Waters Ford uh, lawless approach to impeachment rather than the Dershowitz lawful constitutional rule of law mm-hmm. approach. I think mine is the better way. And do you think that if it came to it, that's where we might end up in the Supreme Court? I wouldn't be surprised. If they tried to impeach and remove President Trump based on non-constitutional criteria, I think there's every reason to believe he might say, no, I'm not going. He's not Al Gore. Al Gore decided not to contest the Supreme Court. By the way, that was a Supreme Court decision. But he didn't even contest the Supreme Court decision in a dignified way. He simply went away. I don't believe this president would necessarily do that if he honestly felt that his advisors told him that the Senate and the Congress had acted unconstitutionally to remove him. And now I want to dig into the defined terms for justification for impeachment that you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, they are treason, bribery, and the third one is high crimes and misdemeanors. That sort of seems like a pretty archaic term. So do we know what is covered by high crimes and misdemeanors? I think I do. Um, high crimes are obvious. That is, they are violations of the criminal law that deal with matters of state that are very high. Um, And Madison and Hamilton both talked about the criteria involving abuse of office, abuse of government, so that Bill Clinton, who committed a low crime, not a high crime, was improperly impeached. Uh, Then you get to the term misdemeanor. That's where I think much of the controversy lies. Um, Misdemeanors at common law could be serious crimes. Under Blackstone's uh, treatise, you could even have a capital misdemeanor. You could execute somebody for committing a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor was a genre of crime. It carried kind of different consequences than felonies. Now, over the years, we've abolished the distinction largely between misdemeanors and crimes. But we've not abolished them by making misdemeanors non-crimes. We've abolished it by making misdemeanors crimes, by putting the misdemeanor category into the crime category. So the changing circumstances have actually strengthened my position. Okay. So give me a couple of examples of what kind of actions would fall under high crimes and misdemeanors. Okay. I'll give you an example of mystery. Uh, Alexander Hamilton notoriously was seduced by a woman to have an affair. And the reason for the seduction was the man, the husband, wanted to extort him. And he paid the extortion money and he was caught. And he was accused of paying the money from the treasury. If he had paid the money from the treasury, it would be a high crime. But if he merely paid the the money from his own pocket, it would not be a high crime. It would just be paying off somebody uh, to cover up an affair. Hamilton understood that, that distinction, when he helped write the provisions regarding uh, impeachment. And I think he had that kind of a situation in mind. So a high crime and misdemeanor is something that involves kind of corruption of government. If President Trump were to really obstruct justice the way um, President Nixon did by bribing witnesses, paying hush money, uh, uh, destroying evidence, telling his uh, subordinates to lie to the FBI, those would be high crimes. Uh, That's the only example I can think of in modern times of high crimes that would justify the impeachment of a president. And those were the crimes that were, in fact, alleged. It was not alleged that it was a high crime Uh, to fire Archibald Cox. It was a terrible, terrible thing to do. Archie Cox was a close friend of mine. It was an abhorrent thing to do, but it was not a crime. And so that was not included among the high crimes and misdemeanors asserted by Congress in their bill of impeachment. 
So then by this standard, Trump having Michael Cohen pay off his mistresses would not be an impeachable offense then, right? Oh, no, not even close. Um, First of all, it has to occur while you're president. Um, Maybe conceivably it could occur in the run-up if it helps you get elected, but that wouldn't even be a close case. Paying somebody off, first of all, it's not even a crime. Uh, You're Mm -hmm. entitled to do it. People settle cases all the time. I don't understand actually why uh, this woman who was just recently arrested um, is a hero among some people. I mean she had a voluntary consensual sexual affair and then wanted money and for her silence. Uh, that's not a particularly commendable act but it's not a crime to pay for somebody's silence as long as they're not a potential witnesses in a okay. courtroom case. Well, then I do want to ask you about a theory that's being batted around about that third payoff that Michael Cohen made to a playmate named Shara Bouchard, who supposedly was impregnated by the former RNC finance chair, Elliot Broidy. There are some who speculate that Broidy may have paid that $1.6 million payoff on behalf of Donald Trump. And indeed, the agreement uses the same pseudonym, David Dennison, that he used in the Trump agreements with Stormy Daniels. If it comes out eventually, and perhaps if Michael Cohen's going to flip, maybe we'll see this, if Mm -hmm. it comes out that Trump had a major campaign donor pay a million and a half to his lover to abort a love child and keep quiet about it in December 2017 during his presidency, is there any way that that wouldn't be considered an impeachable offense and I, I suppose an illegal campaign contribution? Well, it sounds like it could very well be an illegal campaign contribution. Um, But it didn't occur during the presidency and so we would have to reach the issue, an issue never before decided by any court, uh, as to whether uh, a crime, a high crime Mm -hmm. uh, committed uh, before a person became president but in order to get him elected president could be an impeachable offense. I suspect the answer to that would be yes, um, probably. Mm -hmm. But don't anybody – tell you that it's clear because the Constitution just doesn't speak to that issue. Because the agreement was signed in December 2017, which would put it into his presidency. December 17 would put it into his presidency, yeah. But then it wouldn't be a camp. Then it wouldn't be in order to help him get elected. So you can't have it both ways. If it helps him get elected, it's before the presidency. If it's after the presidency, it's not to help him get elected. So that sounds a little bit more like the kind of low crime that Hamilton uh, may have committed when he paid off um, uh, the, the husband of the woman with whom he had an affair. But you do seem to indicate in your book that the area where Donald Trump might be most vulnerable isn't Russia or obstruction, but these ongoing civil cases involving some kind of sexual impropriety with women. Uh, What makes those so perilous for him? Same thing that made them perilous for Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton Mm -hmm. foolishly and with the advice of uh, a lawyer who should have not given him that advice, uh, testified about his sex life while he was president and was accused, therefore, of committing perjury while he was president. I do not think this president will make the same mistake. I think he's learned the lesson of Bill Clinton and would do everything to avoid testifying in a civil case. Now, he has no constitutional right, according to the Supreme Court's unanimous decision, to refuse to participate in a deposition while he's president. But there are many rights he can invoke, including, I don't think he would ever do this, a Fifth Amendment right. But uh, if he did answer that question and he answered it falsely, um, then he's in Clinton land. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Professor Alan Dershowitz when we come back in just a moment. Hey guys, I want to tell you about Dollar Shave Club. 
Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even body wipes. Dollar Shave Club is my one-stop go-to for all of my toiletries. And I've especially become a huge fan of their Amber and Lavender Calming Body Cleanser. It smells absolutely fantastic, and it's a great way to get your day going. But all of Dollar Shave Club's products are great and made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their amazing wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it out at dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash kickass. Did you spend your night tossing and turning? If so, I feel your pain, literally. Chronic back and neck pain have led to many a sleepless night for me. And even worse is that feeling when you wake up all stiff and achy. That's no way to start your day. I talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of getting a full night's sleep. It's vital to your physical, mental, and emotional health and even your overall longevity. That's why I want you to know about Purple Mattress. Made with brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist, the Purple Mattress will feel different than anything you've ever experienced. Unlike traditional memory foam, the Purple Mattress is both firm and soft, so it's supportive yet comfortable. Plus, it's breathable so it sleeps cool, that's a big one for me. And with their 100-night risk-free trial, if you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. Not to mention, it's backed by a 10-year warranty with free shipping and returns. Folks, you're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get 10% off your entire order in addition to this week's free gift with the purchase of a mattress. Just go to purple.com and use my promo code KICK at checkout. That's purple.com code KICK. The only way to get 10% off plus your free gift if you use code KICK at checkout. One more time, that's purple.com, code KICK. And now, back to the show. As someone who's defended many of the most high-profile criminal cases over the past few decades, would you advise Trump to sit down with Mueller and give him an interview? Not unless he had no alternative. No prosecutor ever wants to talk to a subject in order to help him. Obviously, the mm-hmm. only purpose of coming and <laughs> sitting down with a prosecutor is to hurt him. If, 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 if the president doesn't believe that, he ought to call Martha Stewart and ask her <laughs> why she went to jail. She didn't go to jail for what she did on the tarmac. She went to jail because of what she said to prosecutors when she sat down and talked to them. So as a lawyer in 53 years, I've never had a client sit down and talk to a prosecutor, and I'm pretty sure I'll go to my grave without breaking that rule. But he may have no alternative because he can be subpoenaed. And then he has to go to court and challenge the subpoena on legal and constitutional grounds. And in the end, probably he'll win some and lose some. Uh, But in the end, he probably would have to testify as to some aspects of his um, activities. Now, if he's asked, why did you fire Mueller? He doesn't have to answer that question because the Constitution protects a president, a senator, a congressman, a judge 
from having their motives or intentions probed if they engage in constitutionally authorized acts. Yeah, there's been kind of this parlor game of people trying to divine whether Trump had, uh, I forget the term, I think it's uh, corrupt corrupt motives. Yes. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether he had a corrupt motive. Uh, We know that President George H.W. Bush did have a corrupt motive when he pardoned Casper Weinberger and five other people. The special Mm -hmm. prosecutor in that case said specifically that his motive was to end the investigation and his motive was to protect himself. Yet nobody suggested impeachment because his name was Bush and the current president's name is Trump. You can't have one law for one person and another law for another person. Last time I checked, I think there were two articles of impeachment that have already been filed in Congress against Trump. One, I think, calls for Trump to be removed based on his being, quote, a danger to our democracy. I don't think that that meets any particular legal standard, but the other one calls for impeachment on obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. Well, that would meet the criteria, but you'd have to have the evidence of it. And -hmm. in the book, I spell out what would happen if he were impeached for obstruction of justice, which is a crime. But- His defense was that it couldn't be obstruction because he was engaging in a constitutionally authorized act. That would really raise an interesting question. Who decides that? Is it the Senate who decides it? Would it be the Chief Justice who is presiding over it? Who decides it? Could it ultimately get to the Supreme Court? These are all unresolved issues of law that we may never see resolved. And you argue in the book that what people are saying might be obstruction of justice, such as asking Comey to drop the Flynn investigation and eventually firing Comey, you say that those all fall within his duties as the executive, right? So they can't be obstruction under those terms. I think that's absolutely right. Thomas Jefferson, when he was president, ran the trial against um, Aaron Burr. He ordered his attorney general to bring the prosecution. He brought witnesses in, personally gave them immunity by giving them pardons if they testified against Burr and threatened them with prosecution if they refused to testify against Burr. Under the theory of unitary executive, the president is the executive. Theoretically, he doesn't even have to appoint attorney general. He could appoint himself attorney general the way, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu appointed himself foreign minister or minister of whatever. Uh, The executive is the executive. The attorney general speaks for and acts on behalf of the president of the United States. It's a terrible system. If I were writing the Constitution, I'd write it differently. I'd have an independent office of prosecution outside of the cabinet outside of the control of the president, like they do in England, like they do in Israel, like they do in other countries. Is that how you would have liked to have seen this investigation handled in some kind of an open public forum, uh, something independent as opposed to the Mueller investigation? Yes. On day one, I called for a 9-11 type nonpartisan expert investigation to make sure that Russia never again intrudes in our election. Nobody has any doubt that Russia tried to intrude in the election. We don't know whether it succeeded. We don't know whether it had an impact. But there should have been – this is a messy election. There should have been a nonpartisan commission looking into Russian intrusion, looking into whether there are people in the FBI like Strzok who try to put a thumb or even a pinky on the scale by saying we'll stop the election of President Trump. We have an insurance policy. We have to know what that means. And a nonpartisan investigation open is so much better than a closed, behind doors, grand jury investigation which hears only one side of the issue, only the prosecutor's side, not the defendant's side. That was the worst possible way of getting at the truth and stopping Russia from doing it, mm-hmm. doing it again. But how do you have an open criminal investigation like that? I mean, doesn't then the prosecutor or whoever's conducting it kind of signal <laughs> their intent to the accused? Of course, and that's why you shouldn't have a criminal investigation at all. There was no evidence okay. when uh, Mueller was appointed 
that uh, there was a criminal collusion, a criminal uh, conspiracy with, uh, with Russia. There should have been an open investigation. And if the open investigation produced real evidence of crimes, then it could be turned over to a prosecutor. We got it backwards. Well, I want to ask you about these accusations of collusion with the Russian government. That term sort of does a disservice because collusion is not a legal term in this context, right? right. There's, there's right. no criminal statute for collusion, right? Well, there is a criminal statute of collusion, but it's only when business people collude together to violate right. the antitrust laws. There's no collusion crime for a campaign. But if President Trump, let's say, conspired then to aid a hostile foreign power to the detriment of the U.S. and was induced to do so either by financial incentives or blackmail, would that not meet the definition of a high crime or perhaps even treason? Wouldn't be treason because treason okay. is clearly defined in the Constitution and that wouldn't come up to the definition. It could be a violation of campaign laws um, if the president accepted something of financial value. Now, people argue that by accepting, if he did, we don't know about this, information, dirt on Hillary Clinton, that was a campaign contribution. No, that would be unconstitutional. You cannot okay. prevent a presidential candidate from using information from whatever source any more than you could stop the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers or the Manning or Snowden information, all of which were illegally stolen. Okay. So essentially that would be treated, I guess, uh, in campaign terms as uh, free oppo research or something. That's right. And which yeah. is perfectly legal. I wish we didn't have it, but it's perfectly legal. And I have to okay. tell you, if Hillary Clinton had obtained dirt on Donald Trump from the Russians, and people were trying to investigate her for that, the American Civil Liberties Union would be in full dudgeon uh, complaining how the First Amendment rights have been violated. But the ACLU has been dead in the water on these issues. It's making money hand over fist by doing everything to oppose everything Trump's doing. God bless them for doing that. But they have neglected due process, the First Amendment, constitutional rights, because that's not a big moneymaker for the ACLU. You formerly served on the board of directors of the ACLU. In your opinion, has it just abandoned its principles and become pretty much an entirely political organization? Well, that may overstate it, but it's become very political. I served on the ACLU national board during the Nixon impeachment, and the ACLU board was very concerned about Nixon's civil liberties at the time, uh, but not today. Today, the director, the legal director, essentially praised the prosecutor for raiding a lawyer's office, taking client files and giving it to some FBI agent to go through to see if there's anything confidential. I had to stand up against that because the ACLU isn't doing it. In fact, the reason I've been so vocal and, and uh, in the news and on the media, I'm doing the ACLU's job. Uh, they have a $130 million budget. I have no budget. It's not easy for one person to do what an organization is doing, but nobody else is doing it. And I'm going to keep doing it no matter how much I'm vilified or, or complained against because I think it's a very, very important job to do. Somebody has to stand up for civil liberties and constitutional law even when the president is so unpopular among liberals and Democrats. Donald Trump has said that attorney-client privilege is now dead as a celebrated defense attorney. Would you agree with that? I wouldn't say dead, but I would say it was wounded by mm. that raid. But I think it was resurrected by Judge Kimball Wood, who took my advice and, and appointed a judge, a former judge, to go through the lawyer-client material rather than a prosecutor or an FBI agent. That was a very good step. But the ACLU didn't ask for it. Mm. I asked for it.
Yeah, usually the FBI or, or whoever the investigators might be, they create what they call firewalls and taint right. teams to make sure that prosecutors aren't able to access any evidence that might be privileged. Mm-hmm. In theory, it sounds nice, but does it usually work that well in practice? It doesn't even sound nice in theory to me because nobody <laughs> is allowed to look at lawyer-client privilege material, not an FBI okay. agent, not a prosecutor. Second, do you believe for one second that if an FBI taint team had found very scurrilous evidence about private conduct committed by Donald Trump when he was in Russia or something like that. Do you really believe that the FBI agent wouldn't leak it or the prosecutor wouldn't leak it? We live in an age of leaks. (laughs) A former judge would not leak it because there would be one person and that one person would be responsible and if it leaked, everybody would know where to point the finger. But when you have anonymous FBI agents going through these papers, a leak is inevitable. And you also express skepticism that Mueller would ever have been able to induce Michael Cohen to flip on his client, Donald Trump. Uh, what do you make of these hints that Cohen seems to be dropping that he might just do that? Well, Cohen has a fantastic lawyer. He's the luckiest man in the world to have gotten um, the lawyer he, he, he got. And Lanny Davis? Uh, Lanny, Lanny Davis is terrific. He And he's, you know, he's obviously trying to gain maximum advantage for his client. Um, and to do so, you have to make it clear to both sides that each side has something to gain by supporting uh, his client, uh, either by a pardon ultimately or by immunity. Uh, his job is to keep his client out of jail, and he's doing a great job mm-hmm. trying to do it. How about Trump's team? Uh, has Rudy Giuliani been serving him very well in your opinion? I think he started slow, but I think he's really picked up steam. I think he has a a policy of he knows this is in the end going to be very political. He wants to turn the report by Mueller into a red-blue controversy and he thinks he wins that. So he has a strategy and he's been following Mm -hmm. that strategy. I'm not going to second-guess that strategy, but uh, it seems like a plausible approach. There's a multiple approach in the Trump team. There are the inside people who are working with Mueller, who are trying to do lawyerly inside work. And then there's um, Rudy Giuliani, who is obviously the face of the team uh, to the media. And I think their tactic has considerably improved um, since Giuliani was appointed. Again, slow start, but I think a good pickup. Yeah. Uh, can Mueller legally subpoena a sitting president? I know that's been a yes. question for some people. Okay, no, he can. he can. He definitely can. The question is, are there limits to the questions he can ask? Uh, and can, does he have to satisfy certain criteria before he can issue that subpoena? Uh, for example, does he have to show that there's no other alternative way of getting the information? Does he have to show they've exhausted all the other options? Do they have to show that they have evidence of some criminal behavior? All of these are interesting and debatable and important issues. Yeah, and that seems to be where Trump's lawyers are headed uh, now that they're asking for more evidence of where he's going with this investigation and that he can't get this information any other way. Both sides uh, are that, playing hardball. There's no question. Both sides are playing hardball. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're... This case may go into extra innings. Some people have questioned whether Donald Trump pardoning Michael Flynn or Michael Cohen or Manafort might somehow be obstruction. It's pretty clear that the president can pardon anyone he wants, and that's not an impeachable offense. But can Trump pardon himself? 
Nobody knows even the know? answer to that. Nobody knows the answer to that. The framers yeah. didn't think of it. It didn't come up. <laughs> the Constitution doesn't speak of it. Uh, there are arguments on both sides. There's a statement by Madison, I think, that a person can never be a judge in his own case. There are statements suggesting that the pardon power is very, very broad. It won't come up because since the president can't be prosecuted while in office, he doesn't have to pardon himself. If he were worried about being prosecuted when he left office, he could easily resign on the last day, make a deal with the vice president, make him president for a day, and the vice president would then issue the pardon of the president. That's not what happened with uh, uh, Ford and, and Nixon, but the effect was the same. Ford, Ford punished, uh, pardoned Nixon, and he was punished for it by not being reelected president. Now, you mentioned at the top of this, some of your liberal friends have made you into a bit of a pariah because Mm -hmm. of your stance on impeachment. The issue of being invited to dinners at Martha's Vineyard and so forth seems to have dominated the news since this book came out. Are you a little irritated that that has kind of become the lead with regard to this book? Yes. First of all, you know, people are complaining that the New York Times covered me so much. I didn't ask for that. I never called the New York Times. They kept calling me. It was their story. (laughs) So stop pointing the finger uh, at me. I wish they hadn't covered it at all. This is not about parties. It's not about dinners. I get too many invitations. I have too many dinners. Uh, I've lost seven pounds on the Trump diet, which is a good thing. um, (laughs) uh, My concern is trying to shut me down trying yeah. not to let me speak, calling NPR and saying, don't put him on the air, calling Smirconish, saying, don't put him on mm-hmm. the air, calling the Martha's Vineyard Film Society, saying, we'll stop contributing if you let him speak. That's what I'm concerned about. So yeah. as a joke, my publisher has come up, I'm holding it in my hands now, with a new cover for my book, a special Martha's Vineyard edition cover. It's a pra- <laughs> plain brown wrapper. The kind of thing we used to use when we were kids carrying around, you know, the the confessions of uh, Fanny Hill or other dirty books. Uh, So nobody would know we were reading those books. And now people will feel safe on Martha's Vineyard reading my book on the beach without anybody knowing that they're reading the book and accusing them of being complicit with Donald Trump's policies. <laughs> well, next time you're in L.A., you have an open dinner invitation from me, Alan. I appreciate so. that. I'll take it. I'll take you up on it. Well, before we go, we talked a little bit about Brett Kavanaugh's statement regarding impeachment. More generally, what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court nominee? I wouldn't have nominated him myself. I would have nominated yeah. Merrick Garland if I had the chance or yeah. Akhil Amar or some other moderate centrist liberal, but he is highly qualified. Nobody can doubt that. Yale Law School, taught at Harvard uh, Law School. Uh, That's the path I followed, so I can't complain about that. He um, has been a distinguished judge. He is very, very conservative. I won't agree with many of his opinions, but I'm going to wait and listen to how he answers questions before I Mm -hmm. make up my own mind. I'm not going to be one who hold up the sign that says oppose and then it was left blank um, before we even knew who the nominee was. You know, it could have been, uh, you know, uh, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, uh, but uh, some zealot people would oppose it if, if, if the nomination was made by Trump, just like the Republicans opposed Merrick Garland, who was a terrific, terrific choice. They stole that choice from Barack Obama. It was wrong. In my view, it was unconstitutional. The Constitution says that Senate has the duty to advise and consent. It doesn't say delay and prevent. And that's what they did. They didn't bring it to an up and down vote. I think they are obliged to. If I had been the president or if he had asked my advice, I would have told him to swear in Garland. 
um, maybe as an interim appointment or as a permanent appointment, saying the Senate has failed and abdicated its duty. It's waived its power to consent or non-consent. He's going to be the justice and let them challenge it. But um, you know they stole it. But I don't think the Democrats should play tit for tat and try to steal this nomination from President uh, Trump. I think we should go back to letting every nomination come before the Senate and let them have up and down votes. Mm -hmm. That's what the Constitution contemplated. That's what the American people deserve. Uh, how far do you think this shifts the court to the right? We don't know. Uh, you know, Kennedy was more to the right than most people think. He was very much to the right on um, criminal justice issues, uh, mostly to the right on free speech issues. Uh, uh, you know, justices are all individual. Scalia was very, very right on abortion and gay rights, but not so right on criminal justice issues and the First Amendment. We'll have to see what Kavanaugh does. Most of the issues that come before the court have never come before him as a judge, and he's not written about them. So it would be interesting to see 30 years from now when he's still sitting. We don't know what the issues will be. Well, it's been a very illuminating and intelligent conversation. We should be having more of those these days. I agree. The Case Against Impeaching Trump is Alan Dershowitz's new book. Order it on Amazon or Audible. Alan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for intelligent conversation. It's too rare these days. Indeed. Be well. Thanks again to Alan Dershowitz for coming on the show. One more time, order his book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, on Amazon or Audible, and follow him on Twitter at, at Alan Dershowitz. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash kick. That's g.co slash play slash kick. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.